And so I've done some numbers for you. Do you know the average lifespan in New Zealand is 81 years? So if you've clipped over 81 years, congratulations, you've gone past the average. Uh, some of you may have a wee bit more to go to that. But if you live to 81 years, this is how many hours you will have lived in your life. 707,616 hours if you make it to 81. Now, I've got a massive calculator at my house, and I've worked out some pretty helpful things. If you live 81 years, if you live 707, 617 hours, you will have spent 236 of them asleep, based on average sleep patterns. Some of you more, some of you less, okay? You'll have spent 96,000 hours working. Some of you more, some of you less, but obviously this is the average. According to statistics, you will have spent over 147,000 hours either watching TV or doing stuff online during that time, okay? That's a lot, isn't it? And you may have spent around about 88,000 hours eating and drinking, okay? Again, some more, some less, which means and I don't know if you've worked this out in your head already, but which means that there is only 139,224 hours left to live. Not much when you look at the grand total that you've got. And I've been wondering, is there more to life? There must be more to life than just sleeping and working and watching TV and just general eating. Like, What do we do with those leftover hours that we have? What is the purpose of our existence? Why are we here? What is the point? And I think we would probably be, we would be realistic enough to know that the point of life is not to be super wealthy. I mean, you know, there is more to life than just accumulating stuff. And we probably know that there's more to life than being healthy. It's, you know, it's good to look after yourself, but there's things that happen that we can't control in our lives and in our bodies and all that sort of thing. And there's probably more to life than just being powerful or successful or influential because often when people get to those positions, they find them empty. There is no uh, substance in being powerful or successful or influential. But the interesting thing is that that's how our culture responds to this question of purpose. Our culture says, you need to get more money, you need to do more exercise, you need to get a good job, you need to be popular or influential or whatever. But for me, the thing that inspires me most about the Christian faith is that it is so counter-cultural. Jesus Christ, uh, 2,000 years ago, offered people the, the opportunity to follow him, and if they did follow him, then he gave them a new purpose, new significance, a new reason for living, and I believe he offers that to us still today. For anyone who wants to uh, seek that new purpose, he offers them a way to fill their waking hours with meaning and significance. So, this morning we're going to do uh, a bit of an exploration on that. Now, if you've just joined us, we're tracking through our, our latest teaching series, which is called New. And we've been looking at our, how Jesus came to this world to bring something new to the world, but also to do something new for the world. And um, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, you can kind of track in those messages on our podcast, on the church website. But you need to know that two weeks ago, we looked at this guy called John the Baptist, and he was a, a forerunner to Jesus. And he was doing something new with baptism. And what John did was 
he drew the attention of these crowds. They were crowding around to see what he was doing. And in that moment, John the Baptist pointed the crowd to Jesus. And, and he essentially laid the foundation for Jesus' ministry. But then just when it seemed like Jesus was about to kick off something really, really big, he headed off into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted by the cravings of this world. But according to the text, he resisted those temptations, and in the process, he established a new kingdom, a kingdom whose value was not based on position or possessions, but on people and their relationship to God. So this morning, we're just going to zoom in on some people who did choose to follow Jesus, the people he had the most to do with. And you may be aware that, um, that initially, Jesus had quite a small group of followers. It's partly because he wasn't on Instagram he didn't have a Twitter account. He wasn't on Facebook. He didn't have millions of followers. He just had a, a hand-picked, small group, 12 close followers, which have come to be known as his 12 disciples. And these guys were like the inner circle. They were um, witness to Jesus' public speaking and his private engagement. They traveled with him. They ate with him. They saw him perform miracles. They saw and heard his teachings. They saw what he did, his actions. So that was the, the inner group, but there was also a wider group of people who tracked alongside Jesus at various points in his ministry. And scholars don't know exactly how many people were in this wider group. Sort of estimates vary around about 100 people or, or thereabouts. But scholars do know that that group of people that followed Jesus was very diverse. There were men, there were women. Some of them were wealthy, some of them were poor, some of them were educated, some of them were illiterate. There was the blue-collar workers, the tradies, there was the white-collar workers, the accountants. There was just a really, really diverse assortment group of people. And so we're going to pick up the story this morning uh, as Jesus just emerges from that temptation in the wilderness, and, and he goes to a place called Galilee in ancient Israel. It was actually the region that he grew up in. And he settles in at this village called Capernaum. It's a, a little fishing village on the edge of Lake Galilee, population maybe around about 1,500. And in this village, Jesus causes a real stir. Like he starts teaching and he starts healing people and it becomes a really, really big deal. Like the crowds, they're gathering and they are just amazed at what he's doing. And this is what we read in, uh, in the text, Luke chapter 4. Am uh, amazed, the people exclaimed, what authority and power this man's words possess. And so as you can imagine, like word just spreads like wildfire, and people come from far and wide so that Jesus can heal their sick. And then one afternoon, Jesus meets a guy called Peter. Peter's just a regular guy, just one of a number of fishermen in the village, and, and Jesus ends up going to Peter's house for lunch. And it turns out that Peter's mother-in-law is sick. According to the story, she's got a, a high fever. Now, I, I don't mean like to be skeptical or anything, but I wonder if that's why Peter invited Jesus home for lunch. You know, hey, Jesus, come hang out, we'll catch up, we'll talk, and um, oh, by the way, my mother-in-law's sick. Do you think you could do something about that? Um, certainly, certainly that was kind of the expectation that Jesus was able to heal. And, and, and he's very obliging. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then instantly she gets out of bed and prepares lunch for everybody. Now, <laughs> now, I think this is terrible. Like, 
If anyone should be getting lunch made for her, it should be the sick mother-in-law who's just been healed. But anyway, that's how it went. Anyway, so with all these miraculous healings, Jesus is becoming a really, really big deal. And, and people are starting to wonder, is something new happening? What, what's going on here? And Jesus was, without a doubt, doing something new, but it was, it was very subtle, but very significant. Let me show you this. Peter, uh, people throughout the village, that's Capernaum, brought sick family members to Jesus. No matter what their diseases were, the touch of his hand healed everyone. Now that's radical, and I'll explain why. Because when the sick were brought to him, and when Jesus healed them, it seems as if he healed them by touching them. Now at that time, and in that culture, you are not supposed to touch sick people. If anyone was showing physical signs of illness or, or if they were clearly dying, it was thought that if you touched them, you would become contaminated. And so, yes, they had a very limited understanding of germs and bugs and, and microorganisms back there, but they kind of got a fair bit of it right. Like, they appreciated that illness could be uh, transferred, that there could be a transmission of the sickness. And so what would happen is if anyone was sick, they would go into the first century MIQ, and they would be isolated, they would be quarantined, uh, they would be excluded from society until either they recovered or until they died. But what's fascinating is that Jesus intentionally touches the sick. He shows them care and compassion. And instead of Jesus receiving the illness, the sick people receive the healing. It's almost as if Jesus reverses the curse, like he flipped the expectations of what was supposed to be happening. And later in the series, we're going to see why that is significant. But in this early stages of his ministry, Jesus is giving a hint that something new is coming. Something is on the edge. He is not limited to the rules and the regulations of the past, but he has the power to heal people physically and spiritually. He can restore and refresh their relationship with God and with each other. And that's certainly what Jesus does with the first followers. So we're going to pick up the story in, um, in, in the Bible in a place called Matthew chapter 4. Matthew's one of the four biographers of Jesus. And so you're welcome to read along with me as we track through. But this is, this is what happens. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of Lake Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing out a net into the water. For they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Now, you may be thinking, what? Like, how could someone just, just walk away from their livelihood? How could someone just leave their family, their boats, everything, because one guy turned up and said, hey, come follow me? I mean, it seems unrealistic, reckless even, and, and quite irresponsible of these guys to just leave it all behind. Now, I believe that Jesus calls us to follow him, and there are certainly costs involved, and he, but, but I think he invites us to take steps on that journey. And so I want to share with you this morning that same event 
but from another perspective, one of the other biographers of Jesus who, who actually gives us a little bit more context, a little bit more of the back story. So um, we're going to flick over and look at Luke chapter 5, which is the same story, but perhaps a little bit more detailed. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of Lake Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. Now, just before we continue off the story, I want to highlight a really important detail here that Jesus is drawing a crowd, right? But it's not because he's entertaining them. You'll see that they are coming because they want to listen to the word of God. Jesus is teaching them what God wants to tell them. And maybe, maybe you are exploring the Christian faith. Maybe you're new to the Christian faith. What you need to recognize is that Christianity begins with information. Christianity is an informed faith. It's not about blindly believing. It's not that you have to leave your brain at the door. Christianity is based not on speculation, but on information. Christianity is grounded in verifiable historical information. It's not made up. It's not imagined. It's not fiction. It's not fantasy. It's not myth. It's not mystery. Christianity is an informed faith. And so if you are somewhere along that spectrum, I encourage you to keep exploring, keep digging, keep searching, and make an informed decision about who Jesus is. Because that's simply what the crowds were trying to do. Jesus was teaching, and they were pressing in closer. Look what happened next. He noticed two empty boats uh, on the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Peter, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and talked the crowds from there. Now, it's really important to know, we can assume that this is mid-morning because the fishermen were washing their nets. And in the Middle East, people go fishing at nighttime because the water is cooler, it's, uh, the, the fish come up to the surface to feed, and nighttime is the best time to catch fish. And so these fishermen had obviously come back from a night out fishing, they're checking, they're cleaning their nets, probably pulling out you know, the beer cans and the old boots and all the other junk that they accidentally caught, and they're cleaning and then they're drying their nets ready to go for the next night. And then Jesus jumps into one of the boats, and they push it out just a few meters from the shore so he can sit there and teach the crowds who are pressing up to the water's edge, right? Pretty simple, pretty logical. But when he's finished teaching, this is what Jesus does next. When he had finished speaking, he said to Peter, now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus gives the invitation not to the crowds standing on the shore, but to the fishermen, to Peter and his business partners, Andrew, James, and John. When you look at that, that's not an unreasonable request. It's quite, quite doable. I mean, these guys are fishermen. They catch fish for a living. They, they know how to cast a net. They know how to catch the fish. So it's not unreasonable. But what is unusual about this request is that it's not the best time to go fishing. These fishermen are cleaning and drying their nets. They don't want to turn around and then get their nets soiled and, and soaking again. And it's mid-morning. Everybody knows that fish are caught at nighttime. So I don't know what you would do, but it seems like Peter is, is quite polite, but sort of at the same time a little bit skeptical. This is his response. Master, he said, Peter replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. Now, you need to know that 
master is, is, is a sign of respect. It's a term that Peter's using because he appreciates that Jesus is, is a wise person and admired for his teaching, but he also perhaps wonders if Jesus is a little bit out of touch with reality. I mean, they worked hard all night. They caught no fish. They've got empty nets. They're cleaning up. They're getting sorted. They're getting tired, probably ready for a sleep. And then Jesus is like, what, you want us to put our nets back in the water? You want us to go out there in the middle of the day, not catch any fish, come back, re-clean, and dry our nets all over again? I mean, if it was Peter, he'd probably be saying, look, you know, in his head, it's (laughs) mid-morning. It's not even the best time to go fishing. Chances of us catching fish are pretty slim. It's not the best time. And hang on a second, Jesus, weren't you a carpenter? So maybe you know a lot about building and a lot about wood, but you probably don't know much about fishing. And the other thing is, there's this crowd standing on the shore, and they're going to be staring at us, and they're going to see us head out, they're going to be watching, and they're going to think, why are these guys going fishing in the middle of the morning? It's daytime, they're not going to catch anything. And so Peter kind of reasons and comes up with these excuses, like it's inconvenient, and it's a waste of time, and it's, it's not going to work, and people are watching. But, you know, despite his uncertainty, probably despite his skepticism, look at what he says. Master Peter said, we worked hard all night, we didn't catch a thing, but if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this is, this is the transition moment. This is, this is where the tension is. If you are on the edge of Christianity, or if you're finding that your faith is boring, or it's flat, or it's predictable, then this is the moment that you need to tune in, because this is the moment that changes everything for Peter. Jesus has made a request that is inconvenient. He doesn't fully understand it. There are no guarantees that it's going to work. But if you say so, I'll do it. I'll do it. Now, maybe maybe Peter feels obliged because, you know, Jesus healed his mother-in-law, and so he sort of has to owe him one, but... And it's a small step, just, just to go, go back out fishing. But there will be a cost. It's going to cost him a few hours, maybe, maybe half a day. Probably going to cost some money, you know, lost income, lost earnings, etc. It's definitely going to cost them some energy and some effort. And it may even cost them a bit of their reputation. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And the kicker is that In that moment, Peter and his friends had no idea what hung in the balance. I don't know if you remember as a kid reading those those pick-a-path books and where you you basically get to choose your adventure, right? So you're reading the book and then you get to the end of a chapter and um, the character has to make a decision and and so it might be like, um, turn to page 10 to enter the building or turn to page 40 to, you know, run away screaming or something, I don't know. But that's kind of the pick-a-path books. Did anybody read those? Okay, all right, good. It was just me and Glenn. All right, Peter and his friends are in this moment, they have a pick-a-path decision to make, and they have no idea what is hanging in the balance. If they, if they choose to disregard Jesus' invite, if they choose to say, hey, look, you know, we're tired, man, we, 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 need to just, we just want to pack up and go home then they would be nameless, first 
century fishermen which history would long forget. But history has not forgotten those first followers of Jesus. In fact, if you fast forward 40 years, things are really, really different for Peter. So Peter followed Jesus through the highs and the lows of his ministry. He witnessed miracles. He saw the crowds cheering, and then he heard them jeering. He saw Jesus arrested and falsely accused and beaten and executed. And then he saw Jesus come alive again and defeat death and ascend to heaven. And after that experience, Peter became one of the foundational leaders of the Christian movement in the city of Jerusalem. He preached the good news about Jesus. He welcomed new believers to the faith. He worked through disputes and disagreements, and he strengthened the Christians. And then 10 years after his time in Jerusalem, Peter traveled to Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire. And he was instrumental in leading the Christian community in Rome. He sent letters out to Christian communities around modern-day Greece and Turkey. And then in the year 68 AD, Nero, as the Roman emperor, unleashed persecution on the Christian church. Peter, he was captured, he was tortured, he was executed, he was crucified upside down because he did not think he was worthy of the same suffering of Jesus. You know, the three other fishermen on that lake that day. Andrew, the brother of Peter, and he also became a follower of Jesus. And he too tracked through the highs and the lows of Jesus' ministry. And after Jesus rose from the dead, Andrew preached the message of Jesus throughout central Eurasia. He went to places which we now know as Kazakhstan and Russia and Bulgaria, and eventually he was martyred in Greece on an X-shaped cross. James and John, the two other guys in the other boat, they too became uh, followers of Jesus. And, and James, like Peter, he was very influential in the Christian church in Jerusalem. But he was hit by one of the first waves of persecution against the Christian faith. And according to Acts chapter 12 in the Bible, James was killed with a sword by the order of the governor. And apparently as he was led to his execution, James's courage, his depth of faith was so impressive that one of the soldiers leading him, escorting him, fell down to his knees, and he confessed that he too was a Christian, and he asked James for his forgiveness, and he said to James, you shouldn't die alone. And so on that day, both of them were beheaded. John, he was the only, only one of Jesus' first followers to not be killed for his faith. He planted several churches around the Mediterranean. He wrote a lot of letters to strengthen the Christians. Uh, on one occasion, he was arrested. He was interrogated. He was plunged into a pot of boiling water, uh, boiling water, oil, sorry, but he survived. And then he was eventually exiled to the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean, where he died in the year 98 AD. Now, those four fishermen spread the message of Jesus. They were some of the first leaders in the Christian church. And for the last 2,000 years, Christianity has been, I would say, the most influential movement in human history. This is how one historian puts it, a guy called Stephen Backhouse. He says, 2,000 years after its inception as a radical, persecuted sect, Christianity is now a truly international phenomenon, the most populous religion in the world with a wider variety of expressions than any other belief system on earth. 
while it will never be possible to tell the whole story of Christianity in all its detail, it is without a doubt true to say that the, whole, that the small group of Christ followers that started out in the dusty land of ancient Palestine have indeed come a long way. Here's the point. Those four fishermen that day on that beach in those boats, they had no idea of all that would unfold in their lives. They had no idea that the future of humanity essentially was hanging in the balance. They were probably thinking, look, you know, <laughs> we'll just humor Jesus. We'll accept his invite. We'll take him fishing for the morning. We'll probably see there's no fish around. We'll spend the afternoon cleaning and drying our nets again. We'll lose a day, some potential earnings. Probably miss out on our sleep. Get laughed at by the people on the beach. But you know what? It's a small step. It's a simple thing, so we'll do it. But the result of that step, they had no idea what was hanging in the balance. And friends, I think Jesus invites us to take the next step, even though we have no idea what is hanging in the balance. We have no idea of the connections that could be made, or the challenges that could be overcome, or the joy that we could experience, or the impact that we could have, or the purpose that we could gain simply by taking that next step. Anyway, back to the story. Master, Peter replied, we worked hard all night and didn't catch a thing, but if you say so, I'll let the nets down. And this time their nets were so full of fish that they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. And then look at the next line. When Peter saw this huge catch of fish, he shouted, we're going to be rich. We won't have to work for weeks. And immediately Peter offered Jesus a permanent contract with a 30% share <laughs> in the company. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> I made that up. But seriously, though, what would you do? When you just witnessed a miraculous catch of fish, what would you do? Well, Peter does something I think very profound. When Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. Now, can you see the change in Peter? He didn't say, oh, great. Who's going to clean all these fish and the nets? No, fish was the furthest thing from his mind. In fact, he called Jesus Lord, which is more than respect. It is a title of authority and ownership. Peter recognized that Jesus was more than a wise teacher. There was more than a miracle worker that somehow Jesus was connected to God. And that's why he said, leave me, I'm such a sinful man. Peter echoed the assumption of the Jewish culture at the time that, that God distanced himself from sinners. Peter assumes that, that he shouldn't even be in the presence of Jesus, let alone in the same boat as Jesus. Because that's how the religious leaders at the time behaved. They distanced themselves from sinners. They had all these rules and all these regulations which made a very clear separation. But Jesus was doing something new, something radical. He was closing the gap. He was revealing that God draws near to sinners, that God reaches out and he welcomes the humble. And here's Peter humbly kneeling 
before Jesus. Jesus replied to Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. After that encounter, those four fishermen left everything to follow Jesus. Kind of makes sense now, right? But it started out with such a simple invitation to take the next step. Just, just go out, go out a little deeper. Just let your nets down. Trust me, I've got this. In that moment, those guys had no idea what was hanging in the balance. They had no idea how their future would unfold. All they had to do was end up taking that simple step of faith. I mean, they knew it was going to be costly, cost them some time, cost them some effort, maybe some money, maybe some reputation, but they did it. They took the step. They trusted, and our world has never been the same. So here's my question for you. What's your next step? What is Jesus inviting you to do? Is it, is it a leadership opportunity? Is it a relationship that you need to develop? Is it a child to adopt or a business to start? Is it a role or responsibility to take on? Is it, is it to pull back from some responsibilities so that you've got extra time to volunteer? Is it writing a book or making a film or finishing an artwork or creating a website that will bring hope and healing to people? <laughs> Maybe your next step is as simple as cooking a meal from your neighbor or, or, or doing a phone call or a check-in or catching up for coffee. I mean, your next step could be very simple and very small scale, as basic as going out a little deeper and letting down the nets. But what is hanging in the balance? What could unfold in your life and in the lives of others around you if you faithfully take that step? I want to tell you this morning that if you trust Jesus for that next step, you'll find new hope, you'll find new meaning, and you'll find new purpose. Several years after he took that next step on that lake shore, Peter wrote a letter to encourage some of the first followers of Jesus. And, uh, and this is what he said. He said, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he's given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. What's your next step? How about we pray? God, um, we're just grateful that we can pray to you. That's, that's actually a two-way street. Like You listen, uh, and you call us, and then you guide us. And so we just want to trust you to take that next step. I mean, if you could use four simple fishermen to help transform the world, then surely you can use us wherever we're placed. So we just ask, as we do, take that next step. You'd give us a glimpse of what's hanging in the balance. You'd give us the courage to take that next step with the support and the strength that Jesus gives us. In his name we pray. Amen.